All right, you guys, let's get this started then, right? Because really, what could go wrong once you press record? Right? Exactly, what could go wrong? <laughs> it's all going to be very perfect. All right, everybody. Welcome so much uh, to this Crazy People's podcast. Today, we have the highly acclaimed Dan Rosenberg as our guest. And you know the other two, that is my partner in crime, Russ Brommel, and myself, Maurice Huffman. So, but without further ado, Dan, first of all, thanks so much for joining us here on this oh, highly acclaimed, nobody's seen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you guys today. I'm looking forward to talking with you guys. Yeah, there have been a few people that have said that this is the most famous podcast on the earth. Very few Probably only two. And that's two-thirds of the podcast today. <laughs> there we go. I've said this is the best, most famous podcast ever. Yeah. But uh, also, joking aside, Sam, tell us a little bit about you. Let's start at the beginning. Start at the beginning. Well, I think I was one of those nerd guys in high school. And way back in 1969, excuse me, I, I didn't go back far enough. I started programming computers. We had a little punch card machine in the nursing station and that tells you how long ago it was. So that sort of set me off on a tech journey. And I ended up um, starting my career as a computer programmer and I was a management consultant. I worked in energy and communications and web hosting. And uh, I did a variety of things. And along the way, I published a short nonfiction book about some of the strange and crazy coincidences that have happened in my life. I think my sisters encouraged me to write them all down. They're very bizarre. And if you saw them and if you saw them in a movie, you'd say that's bull and you'd walk out of the movie. But they're very strange. And these were true things that happened. And then I got inspired to make up a connection story on my own. And I figured, well, what the heck? I'm just a techie guy. But Russ was very enthusiastic about my efforts. And, you know, here I am trying to write a novel and I knew nothing about publishing. And I think that's pretty damn crazy, if you excuse me, excuse the expression. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Well, and Dan's novel is huge. I've had the pleasure of reading a, an early draft and making some comments and some stuff with it. But it's a, it's not like, you know, sometimes they have these like a national novel writing month where you just sort of cram something together. This is, it's deep and there's multiple storylines and all kind of, it's super interesting. It's really good as an early reader. We'll see how the final version is. <laughs> well, Russ, I'm looking forward to, yeah, Russ was one of my, he was one of the very first readers and we're talking about over a year ago. And I think, you know, sort of the, what I'm learning, I'm learning some of the, the usage of words in the publishing industry and everyone, I've heard this thing, origin story. So I think that's, what the hell is the origin of my of this novel? And it goes back to over 20 years ago. My wife and I were on a vacation in southern Spain, and we took a day trip to Gibraltar. And we're walking around, and it just hit me that if you were a Jew living in Spain in 1492, you had four months to totally get out of the country. And... I, growing up, I had learned about the Spanish Inquisition, but at a very superficial level. And I remember my wife and I walking around and I just stopped and said, what would it be like living in this beautiful place? 
and then waking up one morning and be and be told that you have four months to get out of the country or convert to a different religion. And that sort of set me off on the journey to uh, to create this thing. And that in and of itself was one part. But I've always been fascinated with what's called the ladder of giving. And I think most religions have a hierarchy of giving. But Maimonides, who was a Jewish philosopher, but embraced by Christians and Muslims and by Romans, if you will, back in the 12th century, he actually codified a ladder of giving. And that was particularly striking to me. And that started to morph from there. And I figured, well, how can Maimonides' ladder of giving manifest itself in the, in the current age? And why not try and connect those stories? Because I always have these strange connections in my real life. I certainly can make up some connections. And that's precisely what happened. That is fascinating. It's, I think these religions for me is, is a strange place in many ways, right? Because there's, first of all, the three major religions all come from the same town, if you so want, right? It's like the Silicon Valley of religions, right? It's right. How, how is that going? How is that going about? And I myself, when I was a soldier, I found myself in a situation in Bosnia where I somehow had to talk to a Muslim, I don't want to call him a priest, but definitely somebody who was highly educated, who came to Bosnia to, to support his fellow Muslims. And he asked me about my religion, Roman Catholic, and I'm not so much into my religion for so much, right? And at that age, I was barely 20. All I, all I knew about my religion is that I was in a Roman Catholic school for, led by nuns. So all, everything that I knew was like sublim because they pounded it into me <laughs> for, for years and years and years. So here I found myself having this discussion with this guy about religions on the earth. And again, I'm 20 and he is old, like mid thirties. <laughs> ancient, ancient, <laughs> ancient guy. right? Well, well, I think what's interesting, that's interesting you say that. When I put together Elusive Links and that title didn't emerge till a few months ago, but the protagonist in the medieval story is Jewish and he gets expelled from Spain, as I mentioned before, and ends up in Scotland and gets involved with a woman that is Catholic. And in the modern story, the protagonist, there's actually several main characters in the modern story, which takes place about 20 years ago. And the protagonist is a Episcopalian golfer. And he has a romantic interest in a Jewish woman. And so the whole issue of conversion and what's at the base of your faith, those themes come in here. And I think readers who are interested in historical fiction and some of the things that revolve around religion and choices will find it interesting. And then as Russell knows, underneath this whole thing is golf. And the golf, it's, it is not, Elusive Links is not about golf. There's a lot of golf history and people are enjoying that. But to me, golf is sort of an underlying metaphor 
and is able to help me glue these two stories together. And that's really what was the fun part about it was investigating the religious history, investigating golf history, investigating genealogy history, and trying, as Russ said, trying to work all these things together. It was sort of like solving a puzzle. And so that was quite a bit of fun. I can only imagine. <laughs> well, so I think part of it is here I am a techie and I'm not, I was the, not the good English student growing up. It was sort of the reverse. I was, did great at math. And as I said, I was programming computers at a young age. Now everyone, all the kids are doing it. But back then it just wasn't happening until you went to university and then it was sort of limited. But I had to sort of rely on my technical skills. So that was around structuring, trying to structure the novel. And when you think about engineering, trying to create an algorithm for making the novel work. And I actually disciplined myself in an engineering sense by creating a burn down. So I know I had an idea that most novels from my research are between 80 and 120,000 words, unless you're Follett or James Michener or something like that, then, then I guess you can go to 200,000 words without breaking a sweat. But I sort of figured, okay, I needed to get to this target of 100,000 words plus or minus. So I actually tried to create a burn down chart so that I was actually making progress and predicting when I'd get done. And so I was sort of relying on all my engineering skills in a good story because I'm not the a Philippa Gregory or any of those eloquent writers. So I had to use other, I don't want to say tricks, but I had to use what I had in my own toolbox to make it work. Yeah. Did you also have the situation, that's how it was for me, to find a focus because there are so many side stories that you can elaborate and kind of get lost into. And I found myself that there was like 100 and 200 words. Oops, oh, gone. And there's another 20 pages this way. Oops, oh, gone. <laughs> yeah, Maurice, to... that's, a, that's a really good point. In fact, that was one of the good things that I knew there was a barrier. I've heard stories of other first-time authors writing 200,000 words and then having to essentially chop the volume in half to get to an acceptable first-time novel. But yeah, I think part of the challenge is where do you add details so it's authentic and where do you cut it out so that it doesn't bore, bore your reader? Now I had a funny experience because one, per, one of my pre-launch readers called me up and said, oh, there's far too much golf descriptions near the end of the story. And someone else called me up and said, you don't have enough. You need to add more golf descriptions and drama near the end of the story. And I was relaying the story to another friend. He said, well, I guess you got the balance right. Because some people think it's too much and some people don't think it's enough. So I said, okay, great. I'll take that. That feels good. You know, I had to learn about the indie bookstore industry too. They have, there's some challenges with uh, the number of independent bookstores still out there and how they purchase books and how they review books. And sad to say, part of my research uncovered that just the reading population is going down. And maybe that's because there's so many other avenues for intermittent reading, such as social media or Facebook or whatever, you know, whatever people like to consume. But the number of people that sit down and read books is diminished. And I, and that just may be the temper of our times. I don't know. Yeah. Turn it into a TikTok, Dan. Yeah. Right. 
that, there he is. They, I never thought about it. It's that we could take an audio book, which would take eight hours to read, and we could just translate that into what forty eight hundred or forty eight thousand TikTok minutes or something yeah, like go. that. Let's just chop it into individual TikToks. Something like that. So, <laughs> and you know what? If you went, if you would make that into a daily story, and just fill a year with that. You would that would take you through the roof with with views and whatever because people just want to follow something and have a storyline to follow. Well, it's interesting you say that. There's a, a I can't remember the offering on Amazon now, but that's I think precisely they they're trying to cater to that need. I think it's relatively new, but you get a subscriber to your book and then you could send out a chapter a week or you know a thousand words a week or something. I'm not exactly sure how that works. And that could be interesting. You know, I think part of that is if you had a following, I mean, you know, trying to, I don't know, I'm, I might have to investigate that because I think there is something powerful with what you say that people want to have the ongoing story and they, they're not ready to consume a book in, in hours at a time. They're happy to consume a story in five minute increments or, you know, podcast length increments, half hour or whatever, something like that. Interesting idea. That's the crazy idea podcast. There you go. All of a sudden. The crazy. <laughs> the I got to tell you, the, the other thing, uh, I know you in and roll up to having this podcast, you guys had asked me about crazy things that have happened. And I think one of the things which was crazy was when I was trying to determine if I was going to go the traditional publishing route, which involves trying to sell your idea and your story to an agent and then having that agent then shop it to a publisher and all that goes along with it all the benefits and costs and time that's involved in doing that and i met a young author and she was kind to share with me her query letter that she sent out to agents and she did a she wrote a novel and found an agent through hard work and persistence and she got a seven-figure advance for her novel and the commitment to do another novel. And uh, so she sent me her query letter. And I, I want to make sure I get this right. In her query letter, her name of the book was The Kindness. And when it was eventually published, the title of the book was The Damage. So I figured, holy smokes. If I if I actually pursue the traditional route, not only will it take me another several years to get my book published, it may not even have the same title or anything by the time worldwide people at, at these massive publishing houses get their hands on it. I, th I thought that was, that was pretty funny. The other funny story, which sort of fits, I mean, there's several, but sort of fits with the connection story. I took a trip this past September to Amsterdam and Edinburgh because I had never been to Scotland and I had lived previously in Amsterdam many years ago and my wife hadn't been. So we decided to do this and I did some research in both places, sort of confirm some of the story facts that happened. But when I, when I, when you first told me you were writing a book, it was after a whole other different conversations sort of catching up on work and all kind of, Hey, what, what else is going on? And it's like, Oh yeah, by the way. <laughs> and, and I, I thought to myself, every time I talk to him, he's got some crazy story, some weird thing has happened, some, and then you told me that you had written another book, which was about <laughs> crazy 
you know, connections right. and stuff that happened. And it was just like, if anybody's going to write a book, Dan's got to have one in him. It's got to well, be. Thank a you. Thank you. <laughs> well, well, I think also part of it, which it was, the joy for me was uncovering new connections while I was writing Elusive Links. And so one of my characters in the book, one of the main characters, last name is Solly, S-O-L-L-E-Y. And I was looking for a place for my characters to lodge in Sandwich, England. And I just Googled lodging places in Sandwich, England in the year 2002. And lo and behold is the Solly Farmhouse spelled s-o-l-l-e-y so even in writing even in writing the novel i got to find connections so the other you know other really bizarre connection was and, and russ you know this is one of the preliminary readers is that one of the characters in the modern story has a unique set of physical characteristics sort of really dark skin light eyes very muscular, but big. And he gets interested in his own lineage. And, and so I'm trying to solve the puzzle. And then I find out that inside of the British monarchy in the 18th century, there supposedly was an offspring to a black princess from from Africa of African descent. And so I never would have that just happened onto these things from research. And that was just so so really so much fun. And I really really made it made me it kept me motivated quite frankly because I kept turning over these rocks and finding new little coincidences in my own research, which was a, a, a lot a lot of fun. You know, and, and the research is it it can never be perfect. And so in, in one chapter, I'm having my characters are on a ship and they're navigating with a sextant. And one of my pre-launch readers called me up and said, Dan, I don't think they used sextants in 1492. <laughs> and he was right. I, I thought they did. My research was wrong. And there was a different navigating device that was used called an astrolab. And I was able to rework some of the text without having to do a, a crazy, you know, extensive modification. Someone else, I had, I was fortunate to have someone in Europe who's very knowledgeable about English and Scottish history. And he said, that city, you think it's in Scotland. And it was in Scotland about 70 years before your story. But at the time your story, it was in England. <laughs> so it's right on this. So little things like that. And I actually, when I went over to Amsterdam, and I don't know if you've spent time in Amsterdam mm -hmm. toured, but two famous just landmarks are what's called the Oude Kirk, the old church, and the new Kirk, the new church. Well, in fourteen in fourteen ninety five, when my characters leave Spain and end up in Amsterdam, they weren't called the old church in the new church. They had other names. And luckily I was able to find out those other names, but I, I did sort of wanted to allow the readers to connect. So I used the older, the traditional names and then put 
the older church and distinguish it from the newer church. So it was at least allowed the, the reader to connect to those things. But all these things just sort of came out of the woodwork as, as people, different people read it. So I had golf professionals read it. I had clergy read it. And you actually started me. You were the first reader, Russ. Thank you. <laughs> oh, cool. Interesting. Interesting. So you talked a little bit about sort of the background, right? You had your family encouraged you to write down your initial stories. What was really the impetus to, to go this big? Was it just that the story kind of went there or was, or did well, you come I, up with that, you know, from the beginning? A, that's a really good question. In fact, when I described elusive links to a friend of mine, he said, you know, this may be too ambitious for a first time novelist. He said, maybe you should write the old story and that might stand on its own. And then you can write sort of the story that takes place in 2002, 2003. And he said, or you can try and write it all together and then split them out later, because <laughs> his feeling was I'd have more than enough for a novel in either the medieval time or the modern time 20 years ago. And But it was the connections I've Russ. I just couldn't stop thinking that there's going to be a way to connect them. And so I also wanted to be a little bit more than just having a genealogy coincidence, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then when I thought about the ladder of giving and Maimonides, who first sort of articulated that as far as we know in history, I thought, well, that's a great way to connect them as well. And a lot of most people don't know much about Maimonides, which surprised me. And because he was by by his birth religion, a a a Jew in Spain, I figured Jewish people might know more about Maimonides. And that wasn't the case. And if you ask a lot of people around New York, the only thing they might recognize is Maimonides Hospital in Brooklyn. Well, Maimonides, who was a biblical scholar, actually was also a physician, hence Maimonides Hospital. And I think he, uh, he died, he was in, in Egypt, or, what, or what's now somewhere in the Middle East, I'll have to check my research records, but you know he was a physician to a Muslim sultan in, in the Middle East. So I, I thought that was an opportunity for people to uh, maybe expose someone that was sort of secular in his views about religion and not a literalist. So we're going back to, he lived from uh, it's in debate whether or not I was born in 1135 or 1138. Uh, but you're talking about someone back then who was a biblical scholar and was trying to get people to look at not the liberal interpretation. And some of that, some of that comes out in the book in, in very subtle ways. So which is kind of, kind of was kind of enjoyable to write. Hey, give us the 90 second breakdown on the ladder of giving, if you would, for people who are not familiar with it. Right. So I, that's an interesting one because there were supposedly there were eight rungs on the ladder and and there is a discussion inside the novel between one of the main characters and a rabbi about Maimonides' ladder of giving. And at one end is where people reach into their pocket and donate a little something because they've been asked to do it. And on the other end is giving in a way 
that empowers the receiver so that they do not need your charity going forward. And so there's a continuum that in, you know, the next rung is that you give willing. The, the next rung is that you give more than enough and you're not asked to give. So, uh, so there's no external stimulus to giving. And then you give, but there's some name recognition when you're giving and that sort of thing. So there's, there's a, a hierarchy in several rungs on the ladder. And I think, I think you might even be able to go Google the ladder of giving and look mm-hmm. at my Maimonides, the different discrete rungs. And part of the challenge in the novel is trying to get your head around all those. So I, I do challenge people to think about, you know, sort of in the afternotes to think about their own personal level of giving and how they give. And can you have a personal ladder of giving? And I've gotten some interesting reactions. Some people think that you should expose yourself when you give because that will challenge other people around you to give because they say you and they value you as a human being giving so they would give. But I think where my character in the book is conflicted is that people are telling him to give because it will enhance his personal brand. And he doesn't see that as a high form of giving. He sees that as a selfish form of giving to enhance his people telling him, you should give here because it'll make you more popular and make your brand better. And so he's, my character reacts to that in the book. Yeah, I, I think it's a really cool way to, to sort of frame the discussion, but it's also an interesting way to kind of challenge yourself or have discussions with friends or family about giving and it's maybe, well, what's the next step on the ladder from kind of where I am today to, you know, to where I can be. And the, the thought process, I think in the book around it melds right in with the story. It doesn't feel like it's you know, preachy or anything else. It's really cool. Yeah. And I, it's interesting you say that because I have gotten some reaction that someone who I was surprised that I got the reaction that I was trying to evangelize for what he said, the church of Maimonides. <laughs> and, and, I, and I reflected on what that person said, and it was, I'm really not trying to do that, but I'm trying, it, it, if it actually gets you to think about how people make donations of their time or their resources and how you personally do that, I said, yeah, I like that. I think that's a good thing. And as you know, Russ, from your preliminary read, that there's a huge act of giving by the main character in his agony on and decisions to do that in the book. Someone pointed out, and I think either you and Maurice were saying a few minutes ago, where you can give so much detail and things like that. But as one of the clergy who read the book pointed out to me, you literally could spend your entire life studying Maimonides. I'm sure there are scholars that do that. So I was just trying to get a few essential points out that I could build the connection around without trying to <laughs> interpret these scholarly works of Maimonides. So, and I tried to find some quotes that sort of encapsulated real quotes from real human beings that sort of encapsulated some of this uh, journey and this connection. The one that I think most interesting to me, and I just want to read it, is from Bobby Jones, who most people know was, or a lot of people, if you know about sport and golf, was the founder of the Masters Tournament in Augusta, Georgia, and helped create the course that so many people around the world are glued to every April for several days. And he wrote something down which really spoke to me, which is, golf is the closest game to the game we call life. You get bad breaks from good shots, 
you get good breaks from bad shots, but you have to play the ball where it lies. And that sort of, I didn't find that quote until I was designing the back cover, but that really sort of sums up how I feel about golf and why to me it's a important metaphor because it's so different from other sporting activities that we find out there. Now, I was just struggling with the golfing example, because if there's any sport I haven't ever tried, it's golfing. It's uh, never got around to it. Well, I think the thing that is appeals to me is in golf, you're calling the rules on yourself. And it's a game about your humility and your personality coming out and your honor of so this may be a little bit judgmental or my opinion, but I'm thinking, hey, I'm playing basketball. If I can sort of nudge my opponent, because I have the person, I have these people running around that are responsible for officiating the game. You know, if I can sort of nudge my, my opponent a little bit and it's not caught by the official or I'm in an American football game and I can hold on a little bit because it's crowded and they can't see me holding on and I can give myself an advantage because it's sort of the, the traditional sports is do whatever I can do to get away with, to achieve the victory. And I'm realized that's a gross simplification. And I know I'm doing this with golf as well, but at the end of the day in golf, you're by yourself and you have to look, you have to understand the rules and then you actually self-report what you did and it's sort of learn a lot. If you observe someone cheating on a golf course and you can and you know they reported in that they had a score of five and you know they had a score of seven, it sort of gives you insight into how they operate as a person and how they may operate in real life off of the golf course as well as in the golf course. And that's sort of it for many years has struck me as part of the power of the game that at least it has on my mind. See, the, the, the funny thing is, you said it about golfing, and you said that with the referees. I read a book and I had a couple of documentaries about Kobe Bryant, right, who literally studied the book of refereeing in the NBA to exactly understand how to utilize referees to his advantage, right? Interesting. To figure out the angles of where he could foul or not foul or where, could he, where you could manipulate their perspectives in such a way that he would get a call from them, right? Interesting. So it's... it's Interesting. <laughs> I think he, he went all the way in the opposite direction right. of golfing. <laughs> well, it, you know, and I, I think I don't, you know, I can't fault. I mean, you're given a structure and you're trying to maximize your outcome within the structure. And so I think, Maurice, what you're getting to is the reason golf appeals to me, maybe at the structural level, not the implementation level, of someone trying to maximize their opportunity given how the the game is played. So maybe it's the structure of the game that's appealing to me in that sense. And so, yeah, so I think, and Russ, Russ knows, having read the book, that in the medieval story of Elusive Links, my character that, that escaped Spain is in Scotland, and he ends up playing golf with King James IV, and there is documented evidence that King James IV actually played golf in the, around the year 1500 and, and how they interact in, on the golf fields. 
where royalty sort of commands and whatever royalty once happens in what happens to King James IV when he's out there with sort of the guys playing golf. And so I, I, I really got into that a little bit and maybe to a fault, but it was, that was kind of an interesting part of the, of the journey. The job number two, how, what got you to job number two after the dog bite in the first job and, oh, <laughs> and, and that no. experience? Well, I mean, it's sort of, you know, I was, I was a conflicted young man. Um, I was I'm, really, where'd be all? Where are we all? I was interested, very much interested in the theater. And, and I was a terrible actor. So I, I got, I tried acting a little bit. That didn't work out. You know, no one ever picked me for, for high school plays. In fact, the only way I got a male part was to go to an all girls school that was desperate. They need, they were putting on a play. They needed a man. So I did that, but I got interested in the technical side of, of theater. And so when I went, I actually went to Syracuse University uh, because they had a phenomenal theater school, but they were one of only a handful of campuses at the time I went to school in 1970. I think Dartmouth and Stanford may have been the other two that actually had the entire campuses wired up with computer terminals. Other than that, you had to trudge your way to a building and all that kind of stuff. And so I went to Syracuse and undecided if I was going to try and get my first real job in theater or a real job in technology. And I got to Syracuse. And since I had learned how to program in high school, I sort of came into my own. And, and I had a wonderful relationship with my statistics professor. He was beating me over the head in the morning with statistics. In the afternoon, he was sitting next to me in, in computer class, and I was helping him. And that just sort of propelled me into my first job. And which was just sort of serendipitous. I had written a hundred letters to find a job when I got out of college. And I got one letter that said, come out to Detroit for an interview. Well, I wasn't keen on moving to Detroit at the time, but it turned out to be a wonderful decision. So, and I actually ended up programming some of the very first ATMs, which was a lot of fun. But I think what's taken me, sustained me is just the connections I have with people. And I've, I had some, you know, what I thought at the time were devastating failures in business. But I think people in your network that can see what you are as a person and what you can do, as I said to you guys when, in my little thoughts leading up to this conversation, when, when, one, when one door got closed, this vibrant network that I had opened other doors for me. So that, I, that was... Uh, you know, just uh, sort of the story of my life. I think it's, it's kind of similar because I found for me that almost like in, in the book, The Prophecies of Celestine, right? There's people coming into your life. They have a message for you or you have a message for them. You either stay with them for a certain amount of time and then everything was exchanged and then you move on or they just stay with you and come cyclical, right? Where I, I think that I... I found out for myself that I would rather stay connected to people, but not clinging to them. And then I find them being in your life, being out of it, coming back and so on. And eventually, whenever they were needed or I was needed on, on their side, they had a message or I had a message for them. And there was something that could be achieved, a door opened, another that needed to be shut, shut down and then to, to eventually move on. Right. 
You just reminded me of something. I think that I remember reading the Celestine Prophecy. I think it was by Redfield, right? Many, many, many years ago. And yeah, I read it like 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It made a real impact on me at the time. And you're right. That's precisely, I think, what's happening here. So, you know, my, my view about sort of God in the universe is that there are certain forces at work. And I think it's maybe nearly impossible for a mere mortal man to sort of understand all that because of these episodes and coincidences that happen in our life, which just seems so improbable. Yeah, absolutely. It it was just, as Russ said, he and I were just having a general catch-up conversation, I don't know, five years, four, three, four, five years ago. Mm -hmm. And that may have been at the beginning of COVID. I can't remember exactly when, because what really happened here was that I started this novel 20 years ago, and it may be written about what turns out to be about 15% of it. And life got in the way, and I got busy and in a number of jobs. And I met Russ, I don't know, six, seven years ago. And when we reconnected, may have been just about when COVID started. And the all the terrible things that came along with COVID actually kept me at home and gave me a, a strange opportunity to restart this book I had started to write because I had the time and I wasn't going anywhere. And, you know, and then here I am talking to Russ and he says, I want to read this thing. And it was pretty <laughs> doggone rough when you read it, Russ. <laughs> but, but yeah, but that, that kept me going and that, and then you liked it and that inspired me. So it was sort of my network that kept reading little pieces and, and, and kept me going. The original story was that I wrote eight chapters. That's all I had when I started this thing 20 years ago. And my wife at the time, who was just getting going as a realtor, her phone didn't stop ringing all the time. So we were in the airport going to a a flight somewhere, and it was six o'clock in the morning. So I hand her the eight chapters, because I knew her phone wouldn't ring at six in the morning. (laughs) And and, uh, she read it, and so she liked it. And she sent four chapters to a friend of ours that used to be in the book publishing business. And he said, this is really, really good. Send me some more. And my wife, Abby, sent him the next four chapters. He said, this is great. Send me some more. And she said, that's all there is. So, <laughs> so he said, I want to meet with Dan. So I, I went over and met with this guy named Michael. And he had been with a subsidiary, I think, of Grace that published books at some point. We're going back pretty far. And he explained to me what happens in the book business and how book dealers and how at the time, the big stores like Barnes and Noble and, and those kind of stores of that ilk shop books, you know, and I'll, if you're the, I'll take one of these, I'll take one of these. And maybe if you get to Tom Clancy, you'll stop and have a two minute discussion about Clancy and they'll take two Clancy books for each store they have in their network. And what he was saying was you will labor for a year or two by yourself writing this book. And then you won't make any money off the first book. and then you know, you'll write the second book. And and if that sort of gets going, then maybe you'll make, you'll do something. And he explained to me the metrics of how many books are published every year. And I came home and reported to my wife and she said, okay, that'll be your hobby. It will not be your job. (laughs) So, uh, so, you know, like all hobbies, uh, you know, stamp collecting or whatever, I just sort of put it in the closet (laughs) for, for years and occasionally looked at it, you know, and then Finally, you know, the, the lemon of COVID came along and I got an opportunity to make a little lemonade. Hopefully I get enough people to drink it. 
Uh, here, here's one thing my editor told me when I had the pre-interview with her. She was like, I hope you're not trying to make money with this, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Oh, it's, I think it's a really challenging industry. And uh, in that regard, yeah, I think you have, I think every author, if they're trying to say something, wants to be read. I don't think, I think it's more that than the monetary motivation. But I hear more and more authors saying, I'm glad I had a spouse that could support my dream kind of a thing because I knew I wasn't going to make a living doing this. So yes, I think uh, Maurice, to your point, uh, yeah, I'd like it to be read because I, I think there's some messages in it and I'm committed to try and get it read, but I'm not expecting to have a lifestyle change because of it. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. There's supposedly a movie coming out in multiple chapters and or a series where each series name is a, is a color. And supposedly, it doesn't matter which episode you start with, you're still going to get the same drift of the movie. It doesn't matter. You can start with yellow instead of purple and whatever, but it supposedly still tells the story. Yeah, I, that'll be interesting to see. I mean, my experience with jumping around is that I, I, when I get confused if you're, if you're going back in time and then coming forward and going back and in the same era. So each the medieval story is linear, if that may, may not be the right word. And so is the modern story. So they're all advancing forward in time. So when you come back from one to the other, you're not, it, you didn't leave the year 1500 and then come back to 1492. I went from 1492 to 95 to 1500. And the story ends in 15, the medieval story ends in 1513. And the okay. modern story, starts in 2002 and ends in three. So at least because you're jumping around, at least if you're in one ear or the other, the story is progressing forward in time. And so, but I know, I, I think I'll be very interested to see, I, I think, were you describing sort of, you get different entry points into the story and you come out at the same place? I think that's pretty cool. That's yeah. pretty interesting. I can't wait to see that. I, I, right now, I cannot imagine how they did that, but I'm very curious. And seeing that and what i find interesting too is that they gave each episode a color as the name of the episode nothing oh, else just a colored which is i think which just allows them to not steer the audience one way or the other because the color is just like a number right it doesn't matter interesting in this case or it's even less so pointing than a number because a number you kind of have the approach that you want to sort them right one two three four right, right. you want to put them in sequence yeah. Um, but with a color, there's no sequence to colors, right? Unless you're, I don't know, some arts major, right? My right. wife would, <laughs> would have an entire 30-minute monologue to me with me right now about colors and why there is a sequence and so on. If you would talk to your 16-year-old self, what kind of advice would you give him? I'm talking to my 16-year-old self? Yes. That's really, that's sort of a powerful question. I, I would have to, in, in the person I am, I would have to tell myself to maintain and, and build these connections because that's what, what life is all about. I think you, you really want to be with people you care about because going off and starting businesses is so challenging and the chances of success are so uh, difficult that you got to be on the boat or the bus with people you love. And that would be my advice back to myself or any young person. Just make sure you're on the bus with people you care about. 
and the rest will take care of itself. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic that's awesome. uh, end to this episode. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much, me, guys. Thank you so much for being our guest. And I kind of find it hilarious because you mentioned the question that we asked you before as a preparation for this episode that we barely touched on any of them because we <laughs> totally <laughs> took it. <laughs> this is why the podcast is called crazy people crazy people just... right right yeah. those questions well, were asked I, and answered know, but thank you thank you for that i think just it was very thought-provoking whether or not whether or not we got into the specifics but it, it gave me pause to think about the journey and everything else so i think i know you're just you're going to do a lot more of these and i wish you every success but keep asking those questions ahead of time i think they're a good way to get someone ready to uh, have this kind of interaction which i've totally enjoyed thanks guys thank you so much appreciate thanks, it thanks dan all right cheers thank you, thank you. cheers